0: everybody loves mcdonald's fries so yes you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home um but the bag did feel a little light tonight
1: on revolt black news weekly i can't wash my hands
2: people in jackson mississippi are being told to shower with their mouths closed
1: We investigate the deep-rooted history of the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, as thousands remain impacted by the most recent boil Water Advisory. Why are people not getting the help? We get into it. The Black Lives Matter ongoing fallout and following the money trail. New allegations of financial misconduct plague the movement's founders.
3: Plus, we can run away. We'll be all right. I love you too.
4: I'm Kennedy Rue, and my Tyler talk with Mr. Perry just may be full of Oscar buzz for his new film, which is Tackling Colorism.
0: Every artist should have a right to express whatever they want to. This is something that we deal with as Black people, yeah.
2: I'm Rochelle Ritchie, and we are at the round table talking about quiet quitting and what it means for young Black Americans.
1: All of that and more as the Black News Revolution starts right now.
4: generating Oscar buzz as he takes on colorism with his latest film, A Jazz Man Blues. Hello, everyone. I'm Kennedy Rue.
1: What's up, y'all? I'm guest host Shaguna Doolo. We are definitely looking forward to that story, Kennedy. But first, we begin with the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi and the black Americans impacted by the storms and now the boil water advisory. Black folks in the affected area are boiling mad and feeling abandoned once again. So how do these communities in crisis course correct and hold the right people accountable? We break it down in tonight's top story. So I, I, I can't wash my hands.
2: People in Jackson, Mississippi are being told to shower with their mouths
5: closed.
1: The images of brown water in Jackson, Mississippi remains elusive as a boil water notice continues to impact residents.
6: We filled the tub up with water, and he scooped it up and put it in containers. It's gonna be hard to do after a while, and just exhausting. Boiling water to to shower and to cook, to do everything that, you know, daily hygiene.
1: In Jackson, a city where the majority of the population is Black, residents have overwhelmingly faced the brunt of a decades-long water crisis.
7: It's just so happened that when the flood came, it, it, you know, it caught a lot of attention, and the eyes was on Jackson to see what been going on. But this had been an ongoing problem for some time. We were here two Februarys ago, where we had system wide failures, and the world was watching us. And the world is
6: watching us again.
1: Even though emergency efforts have restored running water, questions linger over whether a more lasting solution will materialize.
2: So a lot of people view the Jackson issue as something that Jackson uh, has to fix and that there's their responsibility to fix. And while that is true, the state also has an obligation to its citizens
4: that we pay taxes to and that we vote in for um, every election year.
1: Jackson's polluted water issue narrows in on a larger issue of America's outdated water infrastructure amid climate crisis affecting cities with a majority Black population.
6: This is a systemic justice issue here and a racial justice issue here. Um, environmental justice is racial justice. This uh, city of Jackson is 80 plus percent black. Our state legislature, our state leaders are majority white. Our All of our elected state officials are white. Um, they've known about this issue for years. For decades, we've known that the infrastructure here in Jackson is crumbling.
1: Now, as residents wait for weeks at a time for help from government officials, some are taking matters into their own hands. And right now we have shipped over six truckloads of water in the last weeks to Jackson. So that's 228,096 bottles that we have flooded the area with and we are continuing to ship water and we're running our plant at full steam to make sure we support him in, in those endeavors. With no end in sight for this crisis, many are asking, what is the real solution?
7: The problem, it's been a problem, but our thing is to fix it right now, it ain't no sense of, you know, pointing the fingers. We do the best we can with the help that we get, you know, we just pray, you know,
1: it'll work out in all our favor. (music) Joining me tonight for our discussion on the water crisis in Jackson, Mississippi, are Mackenzie Williams, Jackson State University student and member of the Student Water Crisis Advocacy Team, as well as Renee Willett, Vice President of Programs and Strategy at the U.S. Water Alliance. My first question is to you, Mackenzie. There are seven members of the Jackson City Council. Five of them are black. So how can a predominantly black council allow this type of injustice to happen to friends and family for so long?
3: Um, I don't necessarily like to necessarily blame the Jackson Council or the city or the, or the Jackson City Council simply because I, I just empathize with the city of Jackson. I am a citizen of Jackson, I've lived here my entire life and I know that um, above them is our mayor, I mean is our governor and our governor isn't necessarily as empathetic with the city of Jackson Um, when it comes to these type of social issues.
1: So then I ask you, Renee, with the city council being
5: seven members, five black, how does this happen? Our water systems are outdated. We haven't invested in infrastructure or workforce in our country in about 45 years. And that's a systemic problem across the country. And the changing climate is making, you know, severe storms, flooding, water quality issues even worse for communities across the country so unfortunately you know this isn't a problem that's isolated to jackson i think we're seeing the results and the tragedy in jackson right now but this is something that communities across the country have to face and deal with
1: yes but for the purpose of our discussion let's deal with jackson because you know we have in Jackson and we have in mississippi a republican governor but a democratic mayor of jackson and when the crisis happened in august the governor held press conferences that didn't invite the mayor to. So is this more political or is it
5: racial as well? Well, I can't speak to the situation on the ground in Jackson, but what I can say is that there are people working right now at the confluence between the city, the state and the federal government to try to respond to the emergency. And I also can say that based on our research at the U.S. Water Alliance, we, we looked at the gap of water access, and in 2019, over 2 million people in our country lacked access to water. And the single most common predictor of if a person has access to clean water or not was race. And so I think that you look at communities that are struggling with their water systems, it's, it's black communities, it's Hispanic, Latino communities, indigenous Indigenous communities, and other communities of color across their country that are bearing the brunt of the lack of investment in our water systems.
1: You've got boots on the ground. So what is, what is life like in Jackson right now, Mackenzie?
5: In
3: Jackson, life is, I guess, trying to carry on as best as possible, but several of our Citizens, although their water might be running, is not necessarily clean. And then a lot of us are scared because we're being told that there are different bacteria in our water that, like, we shouldn't even open our mouth in the shower. We need to use a water bottle to brush our teeth and wash our face. And so it's definitely very frightening.
1: What exactly is the government doing and the systems in
5: place to, to actually help citizens like Mackenzie who are living through this? What different communities are living through now is the result of that Systemic underinvestment in our own systems, and I think that you know the hope that we're seeing at the U.S. Water Alliance is that we're starting to see community leaders, nonprofit groups, or uh, student-led organizations like Mackenzie's coming together and and start to say, "Enough is enough. We need to advocate for funding."
1: Do you feel that there is a correlation between the crisis in Jackson and what we saw in Flint, Michigan, i.e., black cities where the The people are predominantly black and they're the ones suffering.
5: Absolutely. There's a correlation between the lack of investment in our water systems and race. And I think that's something that we are striving to address at the U.S. Water Alliance in partnership with communities and utilities that are taking water equity seriously across the country now. And when we say water equity, we mean everyone needs safe, reliable access to clean water services. Everyone needs to participate in the economic benefits, the environmental benefits and the social benefits that a thriving water system can provide. And that every community needs to be resilient in the face of climate change. And, and in this case, you know, Jackson residents, you know, in, in the Jackson situation is failing on all three of those pillars.
1: So McKenzie, what do you feel is the big picture for the solution? Brown water coming out of the taps. You mentioned that you're in a group chat. What do you and the people there in Jackson that you speak to feel is, is a solution?
3: I ultimately think that the biggest solution would just be to update these extremely outdated water systems. And it-
0: Who needs an alarm in the morning when McDonald's has sausage, egg and cheese McGriddles and a breakfast cutoff? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba
3: really shouldn't be a debate if if it should be done or not or when it should be done. I mean, it just needs to be replaced. And the fact that it's not being replaced is a result of environmental racism.
1: Thank you, ladies, for joining us tonight. This ongoing crisis doesn't have an easy solution, but the more we talk about it and shed light on it, hopefully we can find our way through it. Coming up, tracing the Black Lives Matter money trail, new leaders in the hot seat amidst allegations of more financial misconduct. So what's next? We get into it. Welcome back. We continue the conversation about the Black Lives Matter movement and allegations of mishandling funds as a new lawsuit filed puts new players in the hot seat.
0: A lot of people sent their hard-earned money to BLM thinking that they were uh, an organization that was sincere in the things that they said they wanted to do in terms of improving. Um, certain outcomes in the Black community. And clearly, over the last two years, that's proven not to be the case.
1: So where did the money go? A recurring question that's been directed to the Black Lives Matter movement for some time now.
0: We put ourselves on the
8: line publicly, and so you can't have the benefits accrue privately. It has to be very transparent.
1: Black Lives Matter grassroots believes they have the answer to the transparency problem.
9: Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is now led by a highly paid consultant who paid himself upwards of $2 million in a single year. These are the dollars that my mama donated.
1: That paid consultant is Shalomaya Bowers, board secretary of Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation, and BLM Grassroots is suing him for fraud, conversion, unfair business practices, and more.
9: Our prayer is that the public calling out will encourage them to do the right thing.
1: Those resources total over $10 million, which Bowers is accused of siphoning from the organization, though he denies all allegations.
9: I think that it will have an effect on, you know, issues that that are in the news, like, you know, critical race theory or police reform, various other efforts for equity. In an effort to preserve BLM's integrity,
1: it has become increasingly important to distinguish the Black Lives Matter movement from the individual chapters and Global Foundation.
8: I do think that many of the donors felt like giving the money to Black Lives Matter Global Network was the same thing as giving the money just to Black people or the or the movement overall. When the BLM 10 started and when they split
1: away from the Global Network, they started something called BLM Grass- Grassroots. The missing money is now a matter for the courts, and time will tell if the BLM movement can survive this lawsuit.
9: We're not going to give up the fight for Black Lives Matter. We say this is a fight for the soul of Black Lives Matter.
1: Joining me for more on this story, lead attorney for Black Lives Matter grassroots, Walter Mosley, Keisha King, host of The Keisha King Show, and Angela Waters Austin, who also serves as director of policy for the Black Lives Matter grassroots. Walter, this lawsuit provides insight into where some of the $10 million in donations may have been spent. Now, I'm hoping that you can shed some of the light on the rest.
8: Sure. I mean, as the as the lawsuit alleges, um, Almost $10 million, we believe, has gone into the personal piggy bank of Shalomia Bowers. Um, It was listed in the 990s of about 2.2 in a few months uh, over in 2021. Over the last 18 months or so, uh, we only suspect fees have increased. He's been able to siphon more and more money. Uh, As our investigation proceeds, we find more instances of this malfeasance, of this self-dealing, of this insider payments. Uh, to him and to his firm.
1: Angela, like, BLM responded to this lawsuit saying that the claims are completely false and the claims are salacious. What's your response to that?
2: I wouldn't expect a different response. It's rare that when people are in the wrong that they are willing to come forth with that. Ultimately, it is the-the history of the work of Black Lives Matter grassroots that will stand
1: for itself. Keisha, when you hear this, is the hope and the energy that erupted in 2020 fading, in your opinion?
9: I surely hope so. I'm really not surprised uh, about what's going on. I'm happy that they are being sued. But I think that the whole premise of what the organization started out with, I think we were duped as American citizens. And many of us saw that early on. This was a search for power. This was not a search for helping people. I think some of the grassroots certainly were doing had had the heart and had their heart in the right place, but the organization uh, from the top, in my opinion, it was obvious from the beginning that it was not really meant to help uh, black Americans. But I am happy that action is being taken and I hope that people pay attention to you know how easily it is when you're moved by your emotions and not by and not paying attention to what's actually happening.
8: Keisha's statement I think is 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 uninformed. There's the Global Network Foundation which is what uh, Shomia Bowers is head of. That's the organization that's under IRS audit. And then there are the people that you see on the protests and every street and all the, all the major streets protesting and working on the corners. The work of BLM is actually the work that's done on the ground and not the work that was done uh, by these posers and this, this other organization, uh, Global Network Foundation, which isn't BLM. So when people say BLM, uh, BLM is a movement. So there's lots of people that can be involved in it, but um, and there's some people that can hijack it. So I, I want to make sure we're not confusing the hijackers and the interlopers and the people trying to take advantage of the good people and the good people's money and raising it based upon the work that they see from the protesters and the people on the ground who are actually making the change.
9: There were people in the name, that were marching and protesting in the name of BLM, where other Black, in those communities that they were, where they were protesting, where people died. And I'm not saying that the grassroots movement were responsible, but when you have leaders who themselves say, we are Marxists, that is not a peaceful uh, movement. But if you don't have an informed society of, of knowing what that actually means, it can sound good. It can sound good. But when you look at what that means, when it says it is to tear down, when you're tearing down, that is destruction. Keisha,
1: with all of that said, an unjust system, in your belief, that needs to be revolutionized or torn down, that, that's a bad thing. Because it seems to me, and again, Walter and Angela, please correct me if I'm wrong, but if the purpose of BLM is to correct or to try and tear down an unjust system, then the tearing, of that, tearing down of that system would seem to be of more benefit than the keeping with, with what's causing people that look like the four of us harm.
8: I'm sure I don't know in the 60s when we were marching for our civil rights and we were we were we were eating in, in those diners people were saying we should we should be careful because that white system of oppression that segregates us should stand and that we shouldn't be able to vote all the things that we had to tear down yeah there there is some sacrifice that comes with that but people have to stand up I thank you all for joining us obviously
1: this is a contentious issue that we all feel passionately about but I think we can all agree that anything that makes us and our journey better is not a bad thing. Now to those headlines beyond our borders, from what the queen's death means for Commonwealth countries, to colorism in the African diaspora. It's time to board our flight as we go black all over the world. Girl, the queen is dead. Queen Latifah? No. Beyonce? No. Janet? No.
6: Mary Jane. No.
1: Black Twitter continues to trend following the death of Britain's Queen Elizabeth II, with many wondering how her death affects the black community in the Commonwealth countries. The island of Barbuda declared its independence in 1981. Now, talks of officially becoming its own republic is closer to reality, with the ascension of King Charles III to the British throne. This is not an act of hostility or any difference between Antigua and Barbuda and the monarchy but it is uh, the final step, as I said before, to complete um, that circle of independence. Next, we land in Rwanda, where five years after banning the sales of skin whitening products, it continues to be an issue.
3: Once you're light-skinned and you're more attractive and then guys start coming your way, so you see like dark wants to, you see they're going for organic and everybody wants to be light-skinned.
1: Countries like Kenya, Ivory Coast, Uganda, and Ghana have also restricted the use of these products, underscoring the idea that colorism is still prevalent across Africa. This ban has resulted in a spike in sales of illegal products which can be harmful to the body.
3: Colorism is something that is embedded in us from a young age. We make fun of the dark-skinned kid and compare them to animals. Those of us who do this don't really realize the damage it does. This starts insecurities and lack of self-esteem from a young age.
1: But many are making efforts to hold companies accountable, calling for a halt of the billion-dollar industry.
0: Everybody loves McDonald's fries. So, yes, you accused your mom of stealing some of your fries on the way home. Um, But the bag did feel a little light. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.
1: Lastly, we land in Haiti, where gang members continue to terrorize the country pressuring a number of Haitian citizens to flee to other countries. This has caused major concern. Deadly protests have broken out with folks demanding help from the government and from the world. Many expressed that their cries have fallen on deaf ears. Acting Prime Minister Dr. Ariel Henry has been under scrutiny during this time and is now pushing for an election to overturn the chaos. We'll continue to stay on top of those headlines and more, so keep it right here. There's more Revolt Black News Weekly on the other side of this break.
3: Wish I could be.
1: Halle Bailey as The Little Mermaid. Disney dropped a teaser trailer for the live-action version, which is set to hit theaters May 26, 2023. Welcome back, everyone. Time to get our entertainment fix. Kennedy Rue is here with the headlines that's got Black Twitter talking. So, Kennedy,
4: what's up? Shagoon, good to see you. Well, the Emmys continues to trend as this year was full of Black excellence. From Zendaya's euphoric historical win and Quinta getting ready to school, y'all. It's a lot to understand pack. But first, Tyler Perry's latest film taking on colorism is what's topping the remix.
5: You are the only person that makes me feel safe.
4: So I want to jump right in and get into a Jazz Man's Blues a screenplay that you wrote 27 years ago in 1995. Talk to me about where this idea originally came from.
0: We can run away. We'll be all right. It was a literal rainy night in Georgia and I had just seen an August Wilson show and I went to a little cafe for the after party. And He was there and we had a chance to sit and talk and chat and he told me just write what was in my heart and I went home and started writing Jazzman.
4: So now that chance meeting has blossomed into Tyler Perry's Netflix love story, A Jazzman's Blues, streaming September 23rd.
5: We were bringing to you know, to the screen
4: what, what he hoped and dreamed for these characters all this time. Like, it, it felt like a really huge responsibility, but leaning into that trust for me was always kind of my cornerstone.
6: You, you never really know what he's up to, and so I don't know what the entirety of his plans are. I do feel like this film is a part of that process and part of that plan, and I do hope he will feel that, because the dude
3: is amazing.
4: Writing for almost 30 years, the mega-producer admits for decades, despite all of his success, he felt pressured to write for a certain audience. Those days are long gone.
0: Every artist should have a right to express whatever they want to. You, I've never seen white... Audiences say, you shouldn't write that because you're making all Jewish people look bad or you're making all Irish people look bad. It's something that we deal with as Black people, yeah.
4: As Black artists, we kind of carry that weight on our shoulders.
0: It's an undue burden and it's unfair.
4: My
9: greatest wish for, for Euphoria was that it could help heal people. Hail
4: to the reigning Emmy Queen. Zendaya making history as the first Black woman to take home the TV prize twice for Best Actress in a Drama Series. The Euphoria Superstar saluted women suffering from addiction.
9: Anyone who has loved Aru or um, feels like they are Aru, I want you to know that I'm so grateful for your stories and I carry them with me and I carry them with her. So thank you so much. I'm
4: species. It's an acceptance speech like no other. Abbott Elementary's Cheryl Lee Ralph going viral while singing her appreciation. The dream girl becoming only the second black woman to ever take home the honor for best supporting actress in a comedy series. 227's Jack A. Harry won in 1987.
9: Jimmy, wake up, I won!
4: A skit performed prior to Abbott Elementary star Quinta Brunson winning for comedy writing had Jimmy Kimmel flat on the stage floor during her entire acceptance speech. The internet immediately accused the late-night hosts of white privilege. 48 hours later, Kimmel apologized. Also,
7: the last thing I would ever want to do is upset you because I think so much of you and... Um... And, I, you know, I think you know that. I hope you know that.
9: I do. Well, Jimmy, let me just say thank you. It is very kind of you to say that. Honestly, I, I had a good night.
1: Oh, okay, yeah, I right had here. a great night. Very right great
6: When I was a little girl, all I wanted to see was me in the media. Someone fat like me, black like me,
4: beautiful like me. <laughs> An emotional message of gratitude from Lizzo after winning her first Emmy for her Amazon competition series. Watch out for the big girls.
9: God bless y'all. This
6: is for the big girls.
4: It is I, the mayor of television, Keenan Thompson. Fresh off his first time Emmy hosting gig and SNL's big win, Keenan Thompson returns for his 20th season of Saturday Night Live, October 1st. He's tried over the years to change the landscape of the legendary show, even pushing back against SNL brass, demanding they cast more black actresses. You took a stand about 10 years ago um, on SNL when you refused to play women and impersonate women. Do you think enough progress has been made on that front in terms of comedians, you know, embodying women's personas and portraying women?
1: Probably not. I mean, there's probably a, a ton of work to do in that direction. It's kind of the obvious thing. The guy in the dress, like, it's a, you know a visual, stimulating laugh, immediately, and that's part of the battle is getting the audience in the first you know 10 seconds, 10 pages, whatever it is, like that you're doing. Here to comment is Whoopi Goldberg. I don't really see a lot of black women coming through these doors. And I was wondering if I was in the way of that at all. So I was like, maybe let me just force the issue and and remove myself completely from that situation and see what happens. And what I thought would happen was right. They needed to actually hire the women, you know, and and get them in there.
4: And finally, Drake is celebrating 14 BET Hip Hop Awards me, nominations. Kanye <laughs> and Kendrick Lamar are also top nominees. When Fat Joe hosts Hip Hop's biggest night on BET October 4th. I
1: want you. Moving on to the legal headlines, including Mystical fighting rape allegations and possible life in prison. But first, R. Kelly in the fight of his life as his trial on federal child pornography and obstruction of justice charges goes to the jury. That tops our coverage of who's in the system. First up, the latest in R. Kelly's ongoing legal troubles. The disgraced R&B singer was found guilty and convicted of federal charges involving trial fixing, child pornography, and enticing minors for sex. Co-defendant Daryl McDavid, an ex-business partner of Kelly's, testified for nearly two days claiming he believed Kelly when he denied abusing minors. But doubts slowly started to creep in last month when the trial began. Kelly and McDavid are accused of fixing the 2008 state child pornography trial by threatening witnesses and concealing video evidence, a trial Kelly was acquitted in. Denying prosecutors a chance at rebuttal, the judge ruled the case would go straight to closing arguments, which took place on Monday. This conviction carries a minimum 10-year sentence on top of the 30 years Kelly's already serving for sex trafficking. Shake your face. Watch yourself.
7: Shake your face.
1: Me- Mystical is making headlines again and not for new music. The rapper, whose real name is Michael Lawrence Tyler, faces life in prison if found guilty of a rape charge in July. A warrant details an incident where Mystical is accused of violently attacking a woman in which he allegedly took her keys and sexually assaulted her. Indicted by the Louisiana grand jury, counts of criminal damage to property, false imprisonment, domestic abuse by strangulation, simple robbery, and numerous drug possessions are all hanging over the head of the New Orleans-born rapper. In August, Mystical was denied bail. The hip hop star remains in custody awaiting trial. Next on the legal docket, Inside of an L.A. Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles, rapper PNB Rock was fatally shot in a robbery gone wrong. The 30-year-old rapper, whose real name is Rakim Allen, suffered multiple gunshot wounds. And as details unfold, investigators say an Instagram post by his girlfriend led the killer straight to his location. Our final case, the suspect in a frightening shooting rampage that led to a citywide manhunt will be granted a public defender. Telling a judge he couldn't afford a lawyer, 19 year-old Ezekiel Kelly is accused of killing four people and wounding three others in a terrorizing mass shooting all caught on If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't the road trip. it was just a really long drive Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. at participating McDonald's live stream. With a violent criminal history, Kelly was released early from a three-year prison sentence just a few months ago, serving time for a pair of shootings that took place in 2020. If Mr. Kelly served his full three-year sentence, he would still be in prison today and four of our fellow citizens would still be alive. Police warned residents to shelter in place as the hours-long manhunt unfolded, striking panic, fear, and uncertainty of whom the suspect's next victims might be. Grainy video shows Kelly being arrested. He remains in custody on a first-degree murder charge, with additional charges expected to come. Stay with us. We've got much more Revolt Black News Weekly straight ahead.
4: But first, the future is now. It is the countdown to the Revolt Summit. We're just days away from a weekend of networking, informative panels, and keeping up with the culture. Welcome to the revolution. Join us September 24th and 25th in Atlanta. Tickets are now on sale at RevoltSummit.com.
7: Hi, Jack. Yeah, I have a really fun, exciting project for you to work on. How, How many? <laughs> Actually, I really think you're going to like it. DeAndre, what are you doing now? Oh, no, no, no. I'm going to just write my job description in my email because you keep telling me to do things outside of it.
2: Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly, everyone. I'm guest host Rochelle Ritchie, joined by my fellow guest host, Shagoon. So tonight we are talking about the hot trend of quiet quitting there's been a lot of debate on whether this movement is justified due to the expectation to be overworked and underpaid but some say it's just pure laziness so here with us today entrepreneur and influencer deandre brown and diversity equity and inclusion manager kirstie mitchell thank you both for joining us here so deandre i want to start with you you actually sort of promote this concept of quiet quitting quite heavily on your instagram account why do you do that so much
7: Yeah, I think that quiet quitting is a phenomenal thing to do if we're going to be really transparent because people are, we're starting to realize and due to like IG and TikTok, I've realized that a lot of people are starting to put themselves first when they're working for a corporation because we've seen trends from the past and from these trends, we've seen that a lot of people burn themselves out, specifically people from underrepresented backgrounds because we feel like we have to work 10, 20 times harder to get to the same spots that a lot of other people do. What quiet quitting does, it, it allows us to take a step back and realize that we should value ourselves. We should put ourselves first before we jump to putting our job before
2: us. You know, Kiersey, it's really an aggressive form of work-life balance is what I would say. Mm -hmm. But there's also this other side of that where employers are quietly firing an employee. Um, How do you think that sort of helps employees or employers, I should say, when it comes to the quiet firing of that quiet quitting employee?
6: Yeah, well, quiet firing has been happening for years before we coined a term to it. And I think it's something where employers just want uh, maybe a disgruntled employee to quit on their own without having to fire them. You know, there's a lot of legalities that they have to go through if somebody gets fired um, versus if somebody quits on their own. So what we're seeing is that this new workforce is smart enough to kind of put terms to it. And with quiet quitting, we're abandoning the notion that you have to go above and beyond to just have a happy work-life balance. And, you know, after the pandemic right now, we're seeing that people are burnt out, they're overworked, they're underpaid wages have not increased but the work expectations have increased so I think that's where the disconnect is there
2: so Shigun, let me bring you into this conversation you you've heard the quiet firing the quiet quitting and a lot of people sort of compare it or think that it has something to do with a great resignation it's really not it's really basically saying if this is what you pay me if this is my job description that is all that I am doing what are your thoughts on both of those concepts
1: yeah I mean I listen to both people and with all due respect and honesty I honestly don't know what it is you are talking about. And what <laughs> I mean by that is whether you quiet quit or you're quiet firing, the bills still come first of the month. So everyone who's looking at Instagram and TikTok as alternatives, the, st- the statistics show that most people that engage in an entrepreneurial lifestyle don't actually make it. Mm. And if you are living in cities that are incredibly expensive, your L.A.'s, New York's, Atlanta's, D.C., pretty much where us congregate, how will you pay for the lifestyle that you are trying to emulate on this TikTok and Instagram if you've quietly quit from a job and add the stigma of that institution maybe blackballing you and saying, hey, you know, this person just kind of quietly quit Mm -hmm. so you don't get that recommendation. You may not get that next job. I'm just curious as what what your plan is if you've quietly quit and now you're on your own.
2: Yeah, DeAndre, why do you but the younger generation doesn't really seem to care about that, right? They're approaching the job force very differently than previous generations. Why do you think that is, DeAndre?
7: Yeah, I will not say that we don't care because we I feel like a lot of us do care about our jobs. I think more so what's happening is that we're really strict on setting those boundaries and being open and honest and t- having these discussions with our employers and saying, hey, I'm willing to work my job. I'm willing to do everything within my job description. But if you want me to go above and beyond, I should be compensated for that as well. And I think it's really important that when we have these conversations and we come to our employers with these boundaries that we're setting, that we're also actively working hard at the jobs that we do have and in our role and our description that we have so that we can uh, request more and that we can get more. So. That's more so um, from a quiet quitting perspective how I view it and how I think a lot of Gen Z view it as well. And It's not so much we don't want to do anything, but we want to do things and we want to be paid for the things that we do because we've realized that we are a valuable um, asset to these
1: corporations. Yeah, but that's different than where they started, Rochelle. Like, <laughs> like, when you said quiet quit in the beginning, DeAndre, it was like, yo, quietly quit. Like, I'm, listen, I'm all for getting paid for what you do, but you can't jump ship unless you Jesus himself see, and walk on water, because if there's not another ship coming, you gonna sink. And so, that's
2: kind of the misconception, is that a lot of people think that it's resigning from your job, and it's not actually quitting, it's just doing the bare minimum mm-hmm. and nothing more or and, and nothing less than that. So that's really what quiet quitting is. And that's why I was saying earlier, like a lot of people think that they hear that and they think, oh, these people are resigning from their jobs. No, they're just saying, look, this is a job description. That's what I'm doing today. Don't call me after five. Don't call me on the weekend because those are not my hours. But Kirstie, I want to wrap this up with you. What impact do you think this will have on the standard work ethic?
6: To me, I feel like quiet quitting is the workforce taking back their power. First So many decades, we've seen organizations kind of just take advantage of their workforce overwork them, underpay them on purpose without actually saying that. So right now, I think the workforce that's coming in with Gen Z, we're being a little bit more savvy and understanding that, look, you need me to continue this, this organization. No longer are the days where you have a kind of naive workforce that is just pushing the agenda of these organizations without getting compensated for it, without feeling valued you know, for the work that they're doing. And I think that if organizations don't figure out a way to update some of their outdated HR policies, then they're gonna lose out on really good talent.
2: All right, well, DeAndre, Kiersey, Shagoon, thank you uh, for joining us. Now stay with us for more Revolt Black News Weekly right after the break. Welcome back. Now we're closing things out by shining a spotlight on the black renegades making a difference. This week, we focus on the duo behind Rec.
1: That's right, Rochelle. I spoke with one half of the dynamic duo, co-founder Will Toms, and his mission was to give black folks a space to empower independent creators. What his organization is doing makes Rec our revolutionary of the week. Will Toms, first, brother, let me shake your hands and offer you a sincere congratulations on what you're doing with Rec Philly. Did you ever think that your work would be considered revolutionary?
10: Uh, well, listen, man, I think at the beginning, it's always been about impact for us. It's about doing things that's meaningful and also doing things that are scalable. And I think if folks look at that as revolutionary, then (laughs) that's the title they give, but their words, not mine,
1: but I'll I'll wear it proudly. Well, wearing it proudly, you're the co-founder of this movement, and... What exactly is REC Philly?
10: Yeah, so REC is an acronym, resources for every creator. And what we've done in Philadelphia is we've built this model that's really an ecosystem designed for one thing and one thing only, and that's to empower creative people to do more of what they love.
1: Now, creatives always use that word ecosystem. Like, what does ecosystem mean? Yeah. It, like, really, like, really mean? Because, I mean, I am a news guy. I'm not a for creator. Sure. So, what does that mean? Yeah, we use
10: that word ecosystem because I think it just pays homage to this idea that, you know, no man is an island, okay. right? And I think it's important for us to understand that for folks to be successful, partnerships are important. Thanks to our partnership with Combs Enterprises mm-hmm. and, and Puff, we've been able to secure some funding that's going to help us bring the Miami space to life. So, Rec Miami is here
4: Priceline
10: okay. okay. Rec Miami is just going to be the second of what we believe will be 50 spaces around the world to do this meaningful work for creators who need it.
1: So you are dreaming big, but seriously, your dreams are are reality right now. Like yeah. Philly, Miami, these are major U.S. cities. Absolutely. Are you in contact now? Are other cities in contact with you as we speak, trying to, trying to get on board what you're building?
10: No, when our partnership last was announced last week, you know, we've had, you know, government officials from cities around the world reaching out. As I said, wow. wait, we have creatives as well that are incredibly talented and they're gifted. But just like in Philly, they're tired of seeing them feel that they need to go to New York or L.A. to be successful
1: creatives existing in this ecosystem that you've built, what do you want them to graduate with?
10: Yeah, I think one of the, the things that I'm most proud of is we're, we've redefined what success looks like to most folks, mm-hmm. right? Sometimes when we grow up as creatives, we see the, the names that are always in lights, right, the household names, and then next to that, we hear these narratives of the starving artist, mm-hmm. right? But there's just a tremendous amount of opportunity of success in between that. So what I get most proud of is when one of our creatives comes into REC and they say, Will, I did it. And I know exactly what they mean. Right. What they mean by I did it is they were able to quit that job that they hated, right, to actually pursue their passion because they've got the confidence in their business model to be successful. And how does it look to make 70 80 $100,000 a year doing exactly what you love and then scaling it as you see fit and, most importantly, owning your, your IP in the process?
1: Will Tom's co-founder of Rec Philly soon Rec Miami, yes, sir. and then the world. Thank you, brother. What you are doing is impressive. And hey, we here at Revolt, we're gonna be watching. We appreciate that.
2: I absolutely love that story. Shout out to Rec Philly and big ups for all the work they're doing in revolutionizing the creator space.
1: Absolutely, Rochelle. They're doing amazing work. And that does it for us. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much for making us a part of your night. Bye.